Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. In our paths, we all want to get well. We all want to go to optimal wellness, but also important is our mental well-being and our spiritual well-being. Do you ever notice that sometimes we might be our own worst enemies? Do you ever experience that you might be sabotaging yourself and not aware of it? Have you noticed your friends? It's clear what they're doing, but they keep doing it. Is this due to complexes and traumas that we had along the way? Do we go into fight and flight when we encounter a similar situation to a past trigger that reminds us of a previous trauma? What do we do about this? Well, today we have guest Benjamin Fry, who will describe his journey and discoveries in dealing with these issues. Benjamin Fry, born to an American mother and English father, uh, period, uh, with the death of his mother, he's brought up in London by his father and stepmother. He had a very successful career as a male model, entrepreneur, television presenter, author, and psychotherapist. Sounds fantastic. He made his first million by the time he was 30. Uh, sounds great. And currently, he runs the Kiran House, a mental health service, which is an outpatient clinic in the prestigious Harley Street in London. That's where all the very important doctors are, and has a residential clinic in Oxford. He's written several books, including The Invisible Line, Flat, book, flat, back, flat Pack, Instructions for Life, and another book, How I Effed Up My Life and Made It Mean Something. Well, it appears like he had a golden youth with Eaton, Oxford, brains, money, looks. It looked like it was uh, deemed destined to be a successful life. How many of us does our life turn out as we expect? What lessons can we share from our experiences? Let's delve into this. So welcome, Benjamin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path, your life path, and getting you to writing these books? Well, you've given me a pretty interesting summary there. Um, it was not quite that smooth. Uh, certainly, I've had some, some moments that look good on paper, and I've had some privileges and some opportunities. Um, but I think that all of it really was a, a kind of mask for an underlying emotional journey that was buried in my infancy. My mother died when I was uh, a baby. And in a typical kind of waspy American and upper-class English way, nobody knew what to do with that. And I think the hope was that because I was so young and didn't really remember these things and didn't talk about them, that they would does not have any effect on me. Um, unfortunately, this was not the case. And by the age of, I think, 39, I was basically falling apart with a very serious nervous breakdown. Uh, so, you know, my early past caught up with me. And I can see looking back now that pretty much everything that I was doing in my life was a kind of compensation to try and paper over the cracks. My life in many ways was quite chaotic. It was quite 
um, flighty, peripatetic. I didn't really settle easily on one thing for very long. Um, I was married for 15 years, which I guess is a, a good success at being settled for a long time. But all of my relationships, I think, were colored through the lens of unprocessed and unfinished business from my childhood, uh, which itself was complicated. You know, I had a mother I lost and I had a stepmother. I went to boarding school for 10 years. Many, many strands of complication. So... I suppose in my adult journey, I was fortunate enough to discover treatment for my trauma, um, which basically saved my life. And as a result, um, was introduced to a whole new area of work, which people like Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and Stephen Porges, which are kind of sometimes people refer to as psychotherapy or psychiatry 2.0. It's, I suppose, encapsulated in Bessel's title of his book, The Body Keeps the Score, that there's so much of what we think of as mental health that actually originates in the body. Um, and I set up a clinic, really just to copy the clinic that I was treated in myself in America, which was a small residential treatment center practicing somatic experiencing and um, EMDR and other group uh, and individual modalities. That's kind of where we are today. So how did your childhood experiences affect you? Well, um, I started having panic attacks in my 20s. I didn't really know what that meant. I started having therapy as a result of this lovely kind of middle-aged American woman who told me a lot of things I didn't, or didn't know about myself and about life. It was fairly normal, I mean, I guess, you know, social work type psychotherapy. And I guess I started on a journey of wondering about myself and relationships and also managing anxiety. I had terrible anxiety throughout really my 20s and 30s. And I think as life becomes more complicated and as you have more responsibilities, harder and harder to manage anxiety. Um, and in the end, I didn't. You know, it kind of overtook me. And I had to accept at some point that I was basically very unwell and disabled in my ability to be a kind of husband and a father and a provider and an adult, really. I mean, at that point, I sought various treatments. You know, I started with therapy, then I went to see a psychiatrist, and I, was, um, and I went into a psychiatric hospital in London very briefly, because I discovered it was pretty terrible. And then carried on with this journey of trying to find out what was wrong with me and trying to get some help. And it just wasn't working. And I was stopped sleeping and came really very, very unwell. Um, and eventually I went to a clinic in America and they had an aftercare unit, which was where I discovered uh, these successful trauma-treating modalities and began to recover. Okay. Um, so what was your experience with the mental health system? Well, my experience with the mental health system is very bad. Um, I mean, first of all, I was already 
training or trained as a psychotherapist before this happened. So I had a bias that psychotherapy kind of had all the answers and you didn't need things like antidepressants. You just need to work on your, work on your, uh, your stuff, your whatever, your narrative, your, yourself. Um, it seemed to not really work for me because I noticed that this anxiety that I felt was incredibly embodied. I mean, I would, you know, we kind of shake and tremble and I was in the grip of it from head to toe. It wasn't really a kind of, oh, I'm a bit worried about something type of anxiety. Um, and as I said, I moved on to, uh, reluctantly moved on to seeing a psychiatrist, thinking that I really needed some help. And I, I didn't really know much about psychiatry or psychiatrists at the time. And I suppose I thought that they would at least know everything that a psychotherapist seems to know and then know something more as well. But that wasn't the case at all. They seemed to know very little about uh, what you know, someone had studied psychotherapy for two or four years thought they knew. And they were focused on very different things. Um, and it's where I first came across the idea of the, um, uh, the, the system of diagnoses that we have now, this idea of formalizing diagnoses, um, the DSM-5, for example, is a different one in Europe. And I also came across this idea that there were a kind of parallel track of psychotherapies in the world that have been established in academia, but not, if you like, from the sort of root of Freud and Jung and all those people. So I was told that uh, CBT was going to fix everything because it had been proven in academia and that all I needed was antidepressants and CBT and I'd be back to my old self within a couple of weeks. Uh, for the listener, CBT means cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's many studies right. that show that in many cases it is as effective as medications in treating depression and anxiety, and it's certainly in the psychiatrist's tool bag as an effective uh, supplement to other approaches. Yeah, certainly. And in the UK, what happened is it became the only therapy. So it, it literally became, for a while, the only therapy recommended by the NHS by a body called NICE, which is the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. And there were many political reasons for this, but the end result of it was that uh, you know, tens of thousands of doctors and commissioners and psychologists and uh, therapists were told that there was only one therapy that could be delivered through, in Britain, we have the National Health Service. Um, so it became almost like a kind of monolithical cult. <laughs> and all other forms of therapy were degraded as a result. There, there were small pockets of delivery, and, and it's a very fragmented system, and there were many places where different things were happening. They were gradually eased out as this giant uh, machine trundled through the NHS. So uh, this, is a con you know, this is a kind of political and cultural context of my illness, which was now 12 years ago was that doctors were um, persuaded, uh, as, as they would be by their colleagues who, who assess evidence, that um, CBT could basically cure all depression and anxiety pretty easily. So could um, SSRIs. 
It sounds and, like one I mean, size fits all, and there's no individuality, no individual variation. Can you describe a little bit what cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is? Well, the idea is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect reasonable idea, and it's a perfect reasonable modality as part of a tool bag. Um, but it's a little bit, as you say, of an error to, to create a kind of one-size-fits-all culture. Um, the idea is that, uh, you know, as we're all aware, if you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I'll probably get fired today, you're going to have a worse day than if you woke up in the morning and said, today's a beautiful day and everyone loves me. Um, and the problem is that these things have a domino effect. So if you go to work thinking you're going to be fired all day, you may perform less well, you may eventually get fired. And this reinforces your negative beliefs and so on. So, uh, and, you know, the behavioral side of it is, uh, you know, the cognitive side is the thinking, the behavioral is what that then makes you do. And these things can go round and round in, in vicious circles. If you intervene on it, you can create a virtuous circle of improvement. Now, what's interesting is that that's kind of put out there as a statement of fact. But if you look at a neurobiological explanation, if you look at anatomy, if you look at the body, um, and you look at the nervous system, it's very easy to see why these things are the way they are. Is that if you create, if you experience threat, it changes your physiology, it changes your thinking, it changes your biology. Now, the threat could be a lion that comes across your path, or the threat could be a thought that you create for yourself. So you can actually create a physiological reaction that mimics the response to external danger by creating internal danger. And so that's what we would call dysregulating it. You know, it makes your nervous system function in a way that's adapted to threat rather than to safety. And this changes the way that you behave. But also behavior is important because habits are important. Things you do are important. If you spend all day long playing a video game, that will regulate your system very badly. If you spend more time communicating with people face-to-face, -face, just because of anatomy and evolution and biology, that regulates most people's nervous systems pretty well. That's probably why things like 12-step groups work, is because you get regulated by safe human contact rather than by alcohol or drugs. So, I mean, this is my early experience as a patient, was that I was being told things that didn't really, didn't really strike me. It didn't really fit my problem. Um, and the idea that, it, that my thinking was off, which is why I was having extremely severe uh, symptoms of anxiety, just seemed... Uh, these two things just didn't match. I mean, there was, the only thing that was wrong with my thinking was that all I could do all day was think about how anxious I was because I was in a physiological state of fight or flight. So also I got on very badly with SSRIs. Um, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm very sensitive to medication, as some people are. And the net combination of this led me to become the problem. So I'll never forget the medical director of this very expensive private hospital in South London. It's very famous. After a few days there, he left my bedroom, literally turned his back on me and said as he left, you're a very difficult patient. And, you know, what was difficult about me is I was asking him 
about CBT. I was asking him about SSRIs. I wanted to know what was, you know, what was my treatment and why and, and how would it work. And I was anxious. You know, I was committed for almost psychotic anxiety and I was anxious about treatment. And so, you know, I went from there to the time when I got to clinic in America was like a year. Um, that was a pretty terrible, terrible year. Well, no, I think that was six months. So I was really ill for about a year. And in the time, you know, I tried every kind of thing there was. I tried faith healing. I tried prayer. I tried natural medication. Obviously, I tried therapy. I tried a hospital. I tried psychotropic medications. And the thing that, looking back on it, strikes me is that it just, nothing ever Nothing ever quite added up. It's like nobody seemed to have the, an answer that made sense to me, that fitted me. I remember going to see yet another expensive psychiatrist who said, the reason I wake up early in the morning is because like, back in the Stone Age days, if you were depressed, you'd have to wake up earlier to go and get your food because you're moving slowly and other people would get it otherwise. That didn't feel right to me. You know, I didn't wake up early for any functional reason, I just barely went to sleep. Um, so eventually, as I said, I went to this place in America, and then almost by, you know, much more by coincidence and design, I bumped into the woman who ran this aftercare unit who was sitting talking to my roommate, and I sat down and talked to them. And I talked to her for about, I don't know, two or three minutes about what had been going on. And then she said to me, you, you feel this anxiety and you're in the pit of your stomach, right? And I said, yes. You know, that's exactly what happens. It's like people are talking all the time about CBT and thoughts and this, that, and the other. But, you know, this is, a, this is such a physical thing for me. It's embodied. It's like it comes right from the basement of my, my stomach. And she said, yeah, I know. I can feel it. I, you know, I can resonate with that. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well... You know, when you do somatic work with clients, that's kind of how you do it. It's kind of like a mother with a baby. You can just kind of sense what's up, and that's how you start to work. As the first time, I'd spoken to someone, and I knew immediately she knew exactly what was wrong with me. And, you know, from that moment on, I had some hope. Um... And it was a big palaver, but I managed to figure out how to initially uh, commit for a month into her clinic. Eventually, I stayed three months. And I should really have stayed six, but I didn't have any money. So um, it was extraordinary. I mean, suddenly I went into this place. There's a community of about a dozen people there. They were all people with the same story as me, though, like, I've been here, there, and everywhere. Some of them come out of the addiction recovery route. Some of them come out of psychiatric hospitals. And they've all been told a million things by a million people. I mean, every single person I met, from a professional to a friend to a family member, they all thought they knew what was wrong with me. And they were all wrong in the end, it turned out. Um, and they all had advice of what I should do about it. And, again, they were all wrong. So, you know, we were like this community of people who found somebody who understood us and knew what was wrong. It was like it was like a new technology. It was like visiting the future or something. 
Um, and we threw ourselves into the work, and by and large, everyone did really well. And it was amazing. I mean, there were people who had been there for like, you know, six, nine months, and they were just doing really, really well. It so, sounds like you've come across several uh, different models, uh, each of which is a one-size-fits-all. Like, it's uh, hurtful that that doctor just turned around and said, you are a difficult patient, because his one-size-fits-all was not resonating or working for you. And that's kind of a sad comment on our approaches to healing. Yeah, I mean, that was really shocking. You know, this guy was the top doctor at the top hospital. And it seemed like I was letting him down by not getting well. Yeah, it's all your fault. Uh, and I, yeah, I, yeah I mean, I think it's really shocking. I, I think when you have desperate people and they're paying like 900 pounds a day for help, you should be figuring out how to help them, not trying to figure out, not trying to pathologize them for your help not working for them. That's horrible. Um, and look, I think it's one of the tragedies of mental health treatment, which is that it's a huge, it's a huge problem. It's a huge burden in society. It's a huge difficulty for anyone to try to solve this problem, whether a policymaker or a clinician or a doctor or a support worker or whatever. Um, and the pressure is in, intense and immense. And so when things don't work, when things look like failing, it's very, very um, hard on them. You know, my girlfriend had lunch with a psychiatrist recently, and she said he was just he was really upset that she had things to say about psychiatry which he didn't agree with. Oh, how he dare like her. Yeah. Yeah, like, but he, said he felt like everybody's, everybody's criticizing and attacking the profession, and you know, maybe he should just leave and do something else. And the thing is, it is, you know, it is, a, it is a very difficult profession to work in because, particularly if you're a doctor, I mean, you, you know, you spend years training to be a doctor, and most doctors spend most of their time successfully treating people for which those people are grateful. Like, you know, if I deal with broken legs, most of the time, most people come in, and, you know, 99% of the time, their legs fixed within six weeks, and they're walking around like nothing's happened. That's satisfying. You know, there, there, there isn't, like, lobbies of people out there telling you you're doing everything wrong. I think in mental health, regardless of your place in the clinical architecture, um, there's a lot of vulnerability. I mean, look, I set up and was the clinical director of my own clinic, and, you know, it's still going, and I'm now the chairman. And... We have to be reasonably robust, but we also have to be very humble. We can't do everything perfectly all the time. We can't help everyone perfectly all the time. And that's not their fault. Um, but also, the, the science and the medicine being what it is, you have to allow that it's also not our fault. You know, we have to allow that for ourselves. Uh, you know, we live in a place in what we call mental health, which I think is probably something like, uh, what we think of as physical health, maybe in sort of 1735. There's, you know, still a lot of guesswork and conjecture and trial and error. Um, and it's important to remain open to change and improvement. One of the hardest things to see is this kind of entrenched 
institutional battle between the you know, these large monolithical organizations like, say, American Psychiatrists Association or the NHS in the UK. And if you like, the kind of gang of plucky rebels, like people like Bessel van der Kolk, who are trying to say, look, there's more to understand, there's more to do, there's more options. There's things I love to Bessel give people van der Kolk, yeah. And where was it we met? We met at the um, Royal College of Psychiatrists annual yeah. conference in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of psychiatric organizations, okay. So the tricky thing is to get people to to think. I mean, let me give you a story. So there's a guy called David Clark who was one of the architects of the of the CBT delivery in the UK. Uh, worked with the government to deliver across the nation. It's a huge task they took on, and you know, well worth doing. Sadly, at the expense of many other valuable therapies, but. His, his kind of uh, zeal for this was summed up in his many presentations. And, you know, I met him privately and I said, look, it doesn't work for everyone, right? And he's like, but pull out the statistics and say, look, on the way that we measure it, these services here, their service there, on average, you know, we're, we're helping people out of a clinical problem, I think, yeah, 42% of the time or 42, you know, whatever percent it was. And this was delivered with great satisfaction and um, you know, a robust, if you like, rebuttal of any criticism, which I accept. You know, if all of that's correct, that's a huge achievement and step forward. But I said to him, what about, you know, what about the other 58%? Because I was one of them. You know, what about me? And he just kind of shrugged. He didn't have an answer. That wasn't the point. You know, the point was to try to create something at scale that would work for enough people. And I think this is, you know, why people get so upset with the mental health world. If there is this kind of one-size-fits-all, there's also this idea that, uh, you know, people champion that one thing that they're particularly excited about or that they're well rewarded for, for pushing through. I mean, even to the point of like, you know, we all know about this idea that the drug companies pay for research that then favors the drugs that they want to sell. Um, there's a huge amount, you know, anywhere where there's confusion and a lack of knowledge, there's a huge amount of opportunity for people to come in and say, look, uh, you know, I'm the one, I've got the answer. Come and play in my sandbox. And that may give them prestige, it may give them money, it may give them academic advancement, uh, it may do all sorts of things. But what there isn't, enough of, there's enough kind of humility and heart for the suffering of the individuals because in amongst all of that, there are people who are literally dying, but there are many more people whose lives are kind of ruined and wasted and, and destroyed and it, and it destroys the lives of those around them. Um, and we should be, we should be able to hold that that kind of a universe of distress in mind and ask ourselves, can we remain humble? Can we remain open? Can we remain curious and do more things and offer people more choice, more modalities, be open to more ways of doing things 
rather than close things down by saying, you know, we've researched this, we know this, we know that, everything is, this, this is how it must be. Because that is actually something that comforts the people who do the treating, to have a sense of order in this miasma of chaos. It's not really actually that helpful for patients usually. It sounds so reasonable. Why would anyone question that? I mean, what is there to question about that? We, we need to be human. I, we, we need to be humble. We don't cure them. I mean, we, I mean, we facilitate the healing. I always tell my patients that you're the one do, you know, in charge of your healing. You're the one making the decisions. I'm your coach. I'm your cheerleader. I'm going to give you information. I mean, uh, why would we not be humble? We don't have the answers. I don't get it. I don't know. But, you know, I, I mean, I may not have been humble myself, but life brought me to my knees. And I spent, you know, I spent over four months in a psychiatric hospital in America as a member of, uh, you know, the patient body. And dozens, if not hundreds of people came in and left and were around me during that time. And, you know, these are amazing people. These are amazing people doing amazing work on themselves. And they are amazingly motivated to pick themselves up from the often terrible place they find themselves in and to recover. And all they're looking for is like a tiny little sliver of hope. They're looking for a tiny little runway that they can climb onto where they think there might be a successful chance of recovery. And it's not too much to ask. Uh, you know, it's not too much to ask that as a, you know, as a kind of society and as institutions that we, we try to meet their needs rather than our own needs, if you like, as clinicians or managers. But, um, I'm afraid that the, you know, the flood of distress in the mental health sphere is growing. Uh, you know, I think the pandemic was very bad for it. And I think modern life is very bad for it. Um, there are economic pressures, there are social pressures that have magnified and multiplied. And I don't really see things getting any easier anytime soon for, if you like, this industry. And honestly, I think it's the I think it's the pressure and the comparison with other areas, like say I don't know, um, you know, particularly normal normalized areas of medicine, or maybe other things such as kind of coaching or you know, even sports performance, whatever it might be. But you just expect to go to a professional and you expect them to know exactly what to do and everything to get better. And mental health is just not yet at that point. Well, I totally agree with you because there do seem to be limited options. Uh, you know, I mean, pills are addressing the symptoms. I mean, we need to look underneath the hood. For example, anxiety can be caused by low zinc and low B6 or the parole disorder, etc., uh, fu functional psychiatry is one step better. It's still limited in its approach, but they go through all the nutrients and they look at the amino acids and what's going on in the body to address the physical issues. So that might help the physical area more. But what other uh, modalities? I mean, obviously, compassion, 
I mean, just the energy of connecting with the patient would be a start. But what other modalities would you add, or and what did you find in this woman that you felt totally understood by? Well, these are good points. I mean, first of all, let me just say that uh, I have a lot of time for functional medicine psychiatry, which I've recently, um, only recently discovered and understood and, and been introduced to. And I've been, you know, I set up this clinic nearly 11 or 12 years ago. Um, and actually, there's, there was a case we had of a lady who seemed floridly anxious to the point of, you know, borderline psychotic. And she didn't seem to be responding normally to treatment. Um, and we, we tried everything we knew how to do. We thought we were doing the right thing. It turns out she had poisoning from a copper IUD. Ah. Uh, and that she discovered this on her own by Googling and removed it. And within two weeks, she was making significant recovery. So, ah. you know, again, a very humbling story. I mean, I don't think we did anything wrong. And she was passed through two or three psychiatrists. And the, the people in my team are psychologists and psychiatrists uh, um, and psychotherapists, not psychiatrists. We're not medical doctors. So, and high copper levels will lower the zinc levels. So they, they have a relationship. But also a person that pioneers in functional psychiatry and actually gives courses on it is Dr. Greenblatt, who noticeably was not at the conference we were at, but he was at a conference the day before in London, a couple of days before, but he was not at the conference we were at. I just want to know why not. Why wasn't he invited? Well, exactly. I mean, I was at that conference in London. I can't remember its name, but it was, uh, it was a broad four-day, um, I think, kind of physical alternative health care conference, and it had one day on, uh, particularly on mental health. And David Perlmutter was there talking yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I was at the and, same one. David Perlmutter was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, love him. We were, and no, we were at the same know, conference. The, you asked the question, why are these people not speaking at the Royal College of Psychiatry yes. Yes. And annual jamboree? Yes. I don't know, but it, it's a very, very starkly different culture. You have, um, uh, you know, you have the, uh, I mean, the Royal College, the irony is that Prince Charles was talking at the alternative event, while the Royal College of Psychiatrists are not yet embracing the future. And I'm afraid that there's a very sort of sniffy culture around this, which is that uh, these things are not really evidence-based, they're not reported on by NICE, they're not recommended to the NHS. And yet you have people, you know, some really skillful, well-trained psychiatrists tumbling out of the NHS to come into things like functional medicine psychiatry and talk at events like this, really credible people. So, I mean, that is definitely one area where, um, if you like, the conventional treatment paths are deficient, but there's also, uh, you know, I think the, the, the area where I came in, which is perhaps has a relationship with that, but it's somewhat different, is the kind of work of people like Bessel van der Kolk and Dr. Stephen yeah. Porges, Peter Levine, um, these are people who are looking at the thing that we call mental health, and they're saying, well, mental health is really just an idea. What's real is the body, 
And there's something going on in the body that's causing different thoughts, different emotions, different behaviors, and therefore different relationships. And then those are the things we notice. But what's the root cause of this? Um, yeah, and that's, the, you know, that's the certainly going to address a lot of it. Um, about 20 years ago, give you an insight to the counterpart across the pond, the American Psychiatric Association. I had like at least six courses at the national meetings. They were on alternative approaches. We talked about homeopathy, acupuncture, talked about spirituality and healing. I had another, you know, I had courses on cross-cultural issues and how each culture is different. This was 20 years ago. Oh, I also at one psychiatric meeting had John Mack, who was evaluating a lot of patients who were abducted by uh, aliens. So, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of that stuff back in the U.S., but our culture is a little bit different, I suspect. Sure. I mean, I, I think what's interesting is that there are, if you think about the problem in mental health, it's like a crystal, and there are many faces into this crystal. Um, generally speaking, people do well, I mean, patients do well, when they are working with a team that are willing to look, and look through as many of these faces as possible. Because it is a very complex thing, and uh, you know, there are many possible drivers, many possible root causes. Trauma is certainly one, which affects the nervous system, which will make, you know, just, the nervous system is basically a brake and an accelerator. Uh, how people describe mental health, the words that usually use are depressed and anxiety. Those are the first, first line of problems, and that's just someone who's over-accelerating or over-breaking. Um, so this, you know, this ancient architecture of the nervous system as a kind of evolutionary mechanism to deal with threat and therefore promote survival. Uh, once that malfunctions, you know, you've really got some, some problems. And then you add into that a kind of complexity of things like childhood attachments, which can be disturbed by, uh, you know, lack of well-functioning nervous system in both parent and child. And it just snowballs. It gets complex and complex and complex. But underneath that, is something that's real, that's physical. Like, you know, the nervous system is a real thing. You can, you can die and, and look at your, your nervous system, but you can't die and look at your thoughts. You, know, you can't autopsy someone's um, cognition or behavior, but you can. I mean, you can measure the nervous system. Me and Dr. Porges are working on a technology to bring to the consulting room at the moment, which will come out in the autumn, which allows you to um, feedback someone's nervous system state live during sessions using a nice kind of colored cube which goes through a traffic light system. So you know, where, where you can make something physical, you can make it measurable. And where you can make it measurable, you begin to enter into the area, back into the area of physical medicine, where actually evidence and um, feedback is, is objective rather than subjective. One of the problems with mental health treatment is it's very hard to measure the success of treatment because you're always measuring it by asking people questions. So, you know, you might ask them to fill in a 30-question questionnaire about how they've had various experiences or feelings in the last week or so. Um, but by its very nature, that's different to measuring someone's blood pressure, for example, or their body temperature. Um, and people who commission and pay for medical services, be they 
insurance companies in America or be they um, statutory bodies like the government or equivalent in the UK, they like to... They really like to feel like they're getting objective answers to whether or not something's working. So it's another reason why I think mental health services have been such Cinderella services is because next to other healthcare uh, spending, they often look a little woolly. Um, so I, you know, I think that there's real hope in the future that we can segue into a different conception of many of the problems that you're talking about. I mean, even things like relationship difficulties, addictions, behavioral problems, many of these things could be begun to be understood from deeper markers which are within the body, whether that's a functional medicine marker or whether it's like a nervous system measurement marker. You begin to push back on this idea that these things exist in isolation and you begin to enter into a world where there's actually a causal story. So, you take someone's narrative from, if you like, birth to now, and you connect the dots, not just in things like ideas, like this is why you hate your mother, but in terms of things like, you know, your mother was very shut down, and this is how you learn to be as a child. And now you're very shut down, and now you're in a relationship with someone, and whenever there's conflict, you become very shut down. Because this is how your nervous system learned to respond to threats because you learn from what you, what you observe. You know, children mimic. And so you begin to see how things like uh, attachment styles, like you know, Bowlby's amazing work on attachment was observation. It was phenomenological. They would look at children and they would say, these ones are a bit like that, these ones are a bit like that, and these ones are even weirder, they're a bit like that. There's no effort to explain why. It's just, as psychology often is, it was a science of observation. What I think is exciting now is that you have things like, uh, you know, the understanding of evolution in the nervous system and the way the body relates to our behavioral styles that actually, if you just follow the logic of the idea, you end up with the idea that inevitably there will be people who are over-anxious in their attachments. There will be people who are um, withdrawn in their attachments because these are the two sides of nervous system dysfunction, whether you're, um, whether you're too excitable or too shut down. So I think there's, you know, there's a huge amount of creative work that's coming through and there have been these pioneers, mainly in America, that have been working to push this through since the kind of you know, 70s, 80s, really, 90s. I mean, you know, these people that I've been talking about, and even some of the people that you're talking about from the functional medicine side, there's been a 30-year journey to get to the point where anyone's listening at all. And then you look up and you realize that, okay, there's a few thousand people listening here, but there's tens of thousands that are being told that this stuff isn't even on the map, isn't on the menu. Um, and then there's millions of patients who are missing out. So in, in many ways, it's a privileged time to be working in mental health because you're kind of beginning to see the kind of leading wave of what I hope will be a tsunami of change. Um, and whether that's going to happen quickly or slowly I don't know, and I would like to be a, a catalyst in making it happen quickly so it can reach millions of people 
not thousands of people. But I think it's, it's just inevitably happening. I mean, that's the, the momentum is so much there. You think about these conferences we might go to like 10 years ago. There's so much more on the map now, and there's so much more interest and so many more people going. And so many more patients telling their story um, and being able to find a voice and say, look, you know, I did the conventional stuff, and for me it didn't work. And then I did this other stuff that people are saying was a bit fringe or alternative. But it isn't, because it's very sensible. It's grounded in science, promoted by doctors and academics. Not because they want to, not because it makes their life easy, not because they make money, because none of the above. I mean, these guys that have pushed this stuff through have done in the, so in the face of tremendous opposition and difficulty. But because it's real, you know, because it helps people, and because it's needed, and because there are people walking around saying, this has saved my life. And that's what matters. That's what's important. This is fascinating, and I would love to help get some of this out. But you were talking about under-reaction um, with the nervous system and overreaction. So overreaction sounds like uh, like a little adrenaline flow, flight or fright. You get stressed out. Your cortisol goes up, and that will affect every disease imaginable, and you get anxious. And then the underreaction sounds like they withdraw. So how do these... Uh, two uh, extremes affect how we fall in love and our relationships. Ah, well, that's very interesting. I mean, so first of all, you take the model of kind of like one nervous system. Uh, a perfectly healthy nervous system would respond to threat in a period of different stages. So there'd be an initial kind of hypervigilance in, in a large primate. And then there might be a fight-flight. Stage, right? So if you think about the kind of gazelle at the watering hole, they get a little bit finickety, and then they see the lion, and they all run. Now, that's a normal response to danger, is just fight or flight. You know, sometimes they're fighting them off, sometimes they're running, but it's highly mobilized. So there's a huge amount of energy being expended. Now, interestingly, what will happen when a lion catches its prey like a gazelle is there'll be a moment when the prey will just collapse. Um, like polyvagal theory, you'd say this is like a dorsal vagal collapse. Some people say the deer in the headlights. Um, you know, there are many, many ways of talking about this, but the key thing is you transition from a highly energetic state of fight and flight into a, into a state of low or no energy at all, which is a freeze state. And we all know these words, but it's important to understand that a freeze state encapsulates frozen energy. Because the energy was there before you froze. Before you froze, you, you were fighting or running, even if it was just for a millisecond. So uh, in a, an inactive state is actually even worse, if you like, down the progression of a response to threat than an active state. And what's supposed to happen is either the gazelle gets eaten by the lion, in which case it doesn't matter what happens in the nervous system, or the lion sometimes gets disturbed or moved on or, there's some kind of interruption in the hunt, and the frozen gazelle will actually recover, will unfreeze, but it unfreezes into a highly mobilized state. It'll start running and kicking, even though there's no lion there to kick anymore or run away from. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you can see, like, sometimes mammals will shake and twitch. There's a lot of energy being discharged. And then they relax, and they're back into what we call the parasympathetic nervous system from this excited state of sympathetic. 
And then they can go and sit at the waterhole and they can munch grass and drink water and hang out with their mates because that's what you do in your parasympathetic state. So the problem is when we get dysregulated, what's happened is that the, the nice smooth correlation of our threat response and threat in the present day gets lost. And this is because we've gone into free states before and not recovered. So we haven't come out. So we've trapped an awful lot of energy in our system. And this means the whole thing gets scrambled. So we go from zero to fight flight very quickly and then to freeze very quickly and then back to fight flight. Or we just stay in freeze all the time. Or we're in fight flight. You know, everything's just chaos. And this leads to two defines of behavior which are disordered. One is that I overreact to things. And the other is I underreact to things, right? So what you want is you want the Goldilocks position where you react just right. Now, this is relatively easy to understand for a gazelle, and then you can sort of somewhat extend it to a human. And we all know that people overreact to things, and probably all familiar with people underreacting to things. It's quite interesting. People tend to underreact at work because the consequences are so great that they kind of freeze. Um, and then people tend to overreact in the family because they think they can kind of get away with it. Think about teenagers or lovers fighting with each other. Neither of these things are good for you or healthy or a sign of a well-regulated nervous system. But then you think, okay, so get, get one of these things that overreacts and underreacts and meet it up with another one of these things that overreacts and underreacts, and what do you get? We get a whole lot of different pairings of you know, different types of relationships. And every relationship can have all of these things in it. So you can have two people overreacting at the same time. That tends to be what we would call a very volatile relationship where things blow up and people separate because there's too much energy to contain in one place. And then they'll get back together and they'll do it again and again and again. Um, but you can get a situation where someone will overreact and another person will underreact. And this is kind of like your classic abusive relationship where Somebody's not defending themselves, and the other one is overdoing it. So we're familiar with that. Uh, two underreactors is also quite a kind of modern phenomenon. People whose relationships are very sterile, they're quite distant to each other, nothing really goes wrong, but it's not very nourishing or satisfying. Um, and then you get the Goldilocks nervous system, the one that's reacting just right. Now, if you think about the ideal therapist when you're talking about compassion, etc., the ideal therapist has a Goldilocks nervous system. And so he or she can sit with someone who's overreacting or underreacting, and they will kind of resonate with them and begin to see that they could come into more of a, a mid-place in that stream. Is that what happened course, to you and the woman in, uh, that you met in Arizona? We've only got three minutes left. So, uh, <laughs> so is that what happened with the woman in Arizona that you felt uh, understood for the first time? So can you explain what she had, what you really feel can work, and any final summarizing points and how people get a hold of you, if you wish? Sure. Well, I, look, if you, do, if you become a somatic therapist, yes, you, you start to hold other people's nervous systems, and you can just feel them. I mean, it's a bit like mirror neurons. It's a bit like empathy. I mean, nobody quite understands why, but it becomes a very familiar thing that you can be talking to someone and you kind of see them having an embodied experience and you can sense it yourself and then you can give a voice to it and say, you know, gently, say, 
Is that something you feel in your leg or in your chest? We can ask, where do you feel it? Um, but yes, I mean, so there's a, there's a kind of richness to something that both adds a complexity, but is also tremendously simple. I mean, these are the ideas that I put in my book, The Invisible Lion, which came out of doing uh, hundreds of consultations and assessments for my clinic, where we're just trying to quickly get across in 90 minutes or two hours to someone a new way, a different way of understanding their history and their problems, because they may have been like me. They may have been, we have people going around the psychiatric system for 10 years. They've never heard a single one of these ideas. We are running out of time now, so I'm very fascinated by your your concepts of looking at, you know, the nervous system, how it's dysregulated, not necessarily disordered, but dysregulated. I'm fascinated by that. What I'm also hearing is compassion, because what I sense with a patient, there's this energy going back and forth, and you just kind of feel each other, and you, you get where they are, and you be there with them. I mean, that sounds like a part of what you're describing as well. I mean, so empathy, compassion, and tuning in and going to the space they're in and be there with them sounds pretty important. Uh, Any final words in the last 10 seconds? Uh, Thank you for your time. It's been great to join you. And if you'd like to know more about my work, you can go to benjamintry.co.uk or the clinic is chironclinics.com. Fry does not have an E in it, and Benjamin is B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-F-R-Y. And how do you spell your clinic? K-H-I-R-O-N, clinics.com. Anyway, so we covered uh, a little bit about mental health that we don't talk about very often, except with Dr. Greenblatt. And it just it just shows that we need to be more compassionate, and there are different modalities out there, and there is hope for people that haven't had that glimmer of hope yet. So share this information, discuss it with your doctor, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.